You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Parkview. My name is Will Fuelberth. Uh, If we have not met yet, I'd love to meet you after the service. I normally uh, lead the music over at our central campus, but today I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you all. Um, As you just heard, we're going to be continuing in Luke 4. If you want to keep your Bibles open, uh, we'll be in 4, 14 through 41 this morning. Uh, we'll be picking up right where uh, Pastor Len left off last week, which uh, didn't Len do such a wonderful job last week. It was such, uh, I wasn't able to be here, but I listened back to the sermon, uh, and it was just such a beautiful and faithful exposition of the text, and, and not just because he had three points that started with the same letter. Um, Jesus has been set up for his public ministry through Luke's account of three affirmations, affirmation from heaven as God declares Jesus his beloved son at his baptism, affirmation from his heritage as Luke accounts, recounts the genealogy of Jesus, and even affirmation from hell as Satan is completely foiled in his attempts to tempt Jesus into sin. These three affirmations have shown uh, that Jesus is qualified to be Messiah and Savior, and that should lead us on to be whole disciples of Jesus. And so, After spending these first few chapters setting the scene, providing details to show that Jesus is qualified, he is the expected savior of the world, Luke now turns to describe the start of Jesus's public ministry. Uh, He's proven Jesus's identity, but now we get to see what Jesus came to earth to do. We get a couple brief summaries of his purpose, his, what he is doing in this section, starting with verses 14 and 15 that were just read. It says, Jesus returns from being tempted in the wilderness in the power of the Spirit and begins to preach in many of the synagogues in Galilee. He is growing in fame as stories about him spread. And, and what we'll see today in the rest of our text is two specific stories of, of his preaching and the people's response. He enters two towns preaches in two synagogues, is encountered by two very different reactions and, and from the people, and Jesus responds in two very different ways. And so, ultimately, I hope to show you from this text that, that Jesus has authority to teach and heal as he wills and not always according to our expectations. Let me say that again. Jesus has authority to teach and heal as he wills and not always according to our expectations. 
We'll see this first through Jesus's revelation of himself, uh, then through the reactions of his audience, and finally through Jesus's rebukes, revelation, reactions, and rebukes. Uh, But before we dive in, let's take a moment to pray together that God would open our eyes to see all that he has for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and the way that you reveal Christ so clearly to us. We thank you for the good news that Christ came to proclaim to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives and oppressed and giving sight to the blind. Lord, would you fill us with joy this morning as we see your glory. Lord, would you speak through me, give me courage and clarity, and above all else, would you be glorified as we see whole disciples continue to be formed in the image of Christ. We ask so in your name. Amen. I love good mystery books. Does anyone here love mystery novels? Yeah, we got a few here. That's good. There are very few things I would rather do on a Saturday morning than go to a local coffee shop with a mystery book, uh, you know, mug in hand, maybe sitting in an armchair. The lights are pretty dim, you know, it's the, it's the lamps are on, uh, and just get lost get lost in the page-turning anticipation of what's going to come next and the insatiable thirst to figure out who did it. This can often keep me up late at night saying, you know, just, just one more chapter, right? I'll, I'll turn it off. I'll put it down, just one more chapter. Uh, it's, it's this drive to figure out what is coming up next. And it's, uh, I had to... Uh, in fact, motivate myself this week because uh, on Tuesday, I received in the mail a book that I have been waiting, eagerly waiting for for several months, a new mystery novel from one of my favorite authors. And uh, it took all of my self-control this week to not start this new mystery book because I was writing the sermon and I knew I would get distracted. I knew I would be uh, unable to focus. I knew I would want to pick it up, read another chapter. Um, It was sitting on my table all week, tempting me uh, every day as I came home from work, mocking me, say, picking up, you know, but I was uh, unable to. And uh, I knew that if I did pick it up, I wouldn't be able to put it down. Uh, I might not be standing here right now. And so that's probably a slight exaggeration, but I definitely would look more tired than I do, which is also maybe saying something. Um, I've been eagerly awaiting for this book for a long time because this is a seventh book in a series, and the author does such a marvelous job of storytelling, uh, of building anticipation, leaving you guessing what is coming next, uh, ending chapters on cliffhangers, but not in a cheesy way, you know, setting up expectations for who it might be, only to crush those expectations 50 pages later, giving you doubts about the people you think are the good guys, hope for the potentially bad guys, and ultimately wrap it up in a night, neat little bow where you can go back and, and reread it and maybe see that it was obvious the entire time. Little clues that you didn't notice on that first reading, but examples of just incredible storytelling. And one of the things, one of the, the many things that I love about the Bible is that it is very similar in some of these regards. Uh, I feel like for me, it's, it's often easy to be caught up in the reading the Bible as a knowledge exercise of, of learning about Jesus, uh, growing in Christ, opportunity to love and know him more. And those are incredibly good things, important things. But uh, we will see that there, the Bible is also a great piece of literature. Uh, Jesus has come to reveal himself through his word, and even as we'll see today, one of Jesus's roles on this earth was to teach and interpret the Bible, but even as we see in Luke, each and every book is carefully crafted 
beautifully written, full of hints and clues and themes for what this is all about, suspense, building expectation. Luke has written this as an orderly account for Theophilus, as we see in our opening verses, but he has also written it in a way that is engaging for readers and beautiful. As I said earlier, we have already gotten much of the relevant backstory, the origin story of Jesus, establishing his credentials, establishing who he is, what he is going to do, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, and those, those things will continue throughout this book. But the mor- this morning, we get this kind of transition, this brief, brief paragraph where we have two sentences, verses 14 and 15, where he is going into Galilee to preach. He is, his fame is continuing to grow. His work of ministry in its public recorded sense is about to begin. He has transitioned into public ministry. And and our first stop in in Luke's gospel is in Nazareth. And so, as Ian read earlier, we have Jesus standing in the synagogue, as was his custom, ready to proclaim the word. Now, like any good book or any story in general, uh, Luke is not able to include every detail here, right? We don't don't have them all. What we do have is, is an example of great storytelling, we have these very physical, imaginative descriptors, right? For, for as little actual speaking as we see in this passage from Jesus, we have a lot of action. He stands up, is handed the scroll. He unrolls it, finds the passage, rolls it back up, hands it back, sits down. Everyone's eyes are on him. Why are all of these details here, you know? Wouldn't it have made more sense for Luke to include more of what Jesus actually said? Because he certainly probably said more than what we have here as his interpretation of these passages. Wouldn't that be maybe be more beneficial for us than all of these, in our perspective, less instructive details? But what I think, I think Luke is doing here is ultimately he's drawing attention to these very clear, very clear attention to these words that are spoken as they're important. He's engaging his readers, he's setting the scene, and he slows down and focuses on what we have recorded here. He can't include everything, so he has been very intentional with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to choose words to clearly draw attention to the truth that he is trying to communicate. And right here, I think we must acknowledge that the spoken words he does include are of incredible importance. Which brings us to our first point, Jesus' revelation of who he is, his purpose, his aim, his mission, In this first recorded sermon in Nazareth, Jesus is revealing himself to his listeners and us in a clear and beautiful way. And honestly, if you walk away with one thing this morning, I hope, I hope that it is a greater view of Jesus as he presents himself in this word. If you're not familiar with our mission and vision here, we aim to glorify God through the whole church, forming whole disciples for the good of all people. And so in order to do that, we must know Jesus. We must learn him. We must love him. That is what we are called to do. And so I'm going to go ahead and read this passage. This again, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah as a way to reveal this picture of Jesus's ministry, who he is, what he has come to do. And so uh, I'm going to read, yeah, again, just verses 18 and 19 again. Um, We'll jump back to Isaiah, talk about why this is included, what is included with the aim of gazing upon Jesus in his beauty and grace as he reveals himself to us. And so Luke 4, 18 and 19 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty 
those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are remarkable verses, but what is, what is maybe even more remarkable is that as Jesus sits down to teach, he states in verse 21 that these words have been fulfilled in him, in their hearing. He claims these words as directly applying to him. And so let's go back to Isaiah briefly and, and see what Jesus is claiming because his original audience very likely knew this context well. Isaiah 61 comes as the culmination of Isaiah 58 through 60, where the prophet is, is calling Israel to true repentance and promising the hope of salvation from God alone. Isaiah 60 paints this, this beautiful picture of the future glory of Israel. Isaiah promises that God will make Israel majestic forever, a joy from age to age. He promises that the Lord will be their everlasting light and their God will be their glory. The judgment and wrath that, they were, that were executed on Israel would be replaced with mercy and favor. And, and with that context in mind, we come to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which is Jesus' main preaching passage for that, that Sabbath in the synagogue. It, it pivots slightly in that it begins to speak of an individual who is specially anointed by the Lord in order to accomplish this proclamation and work of redemption that has been foreshadowed in these preceding chapters. I know it's in essence quoted in Luke, but, but let me go ahead and read Isaiah 61, one and two, so we can see what was significant about Jesus's decision in reading the points of the passage that he did. So Isaiah 61, one and two says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now you may notice a, a couple things here. Jesus has omitted the line, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted in, in Luke and, and replaced it with set at liberty those who are impressed, the line he, he borrows from Isaiah 58. And there are a couple ideas for why this may be, but what is abundantly clear is that at that all of these points, Jesus is communicating that there is restoration and reversal of present circumstances. However, what may stand out more is that in, in Luke, uh, Jesus stops just a little bit early in this passage. While Jesus didn't have the verse divisions that we do here, he basically stops in the middle of a sentence in Isaiah. Jesus reads, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and stops. Jesus completely omits and the day of vengeance of our God. This would have stood out to Jesus' listeners. They would have been waiting for him to finish that sentence. But what Jesus is doing in a very striking way is showing that he has come to proclaim salvation now. The year of, the favor, year of favor is now. Vengeance will come later. And they are not getting exactly what they expected. Now, as Jesus claims his fulfillment of these things, I think it's important that we examine what, what exactly is promised here. Each one of these statements is loaded with meaning and should bring all of us great joy in recognizing what is revealed in Jesus. This passage starts with, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And I won't spend much time here because we've already, this shouldn't surprise us especially after seeing last week the Spirit descend on Jesus at his baptism, filling him and leading him during the temptation in the wilderness and empowering him as he begins his ministry in Galilee in verse 14. However, I want to somewhat briefly examine the four statements that Jesus claims that have direct action 
and a specific audience. In Luke, it says, first, we have proclaimed good news. We are proclaiming good news to the poor. Now, it certainly may refer to the materially poor, but it is also loaded with more meaning. This is actually the same word that's used in Matthew, 6, Matthew 5 to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This applies a dependence on the Lord, a recognized humility and spiritual poverty. To the people who are in the state, Jesus is here to proclaim the good news of reversal and redemption. Second, he has to come to proclaim liberty to the captives. Again, this could refer to physical captives. However, it is also much more broad and would include many forms of spiritual captivity, a captivity to demons that Jesus has the power to break, a captivity to guilt where Jesus will bring comfort, a captivity to sin where Jesus can cancel that debt forever. And in fact, Every other occurrence of this word liberty or release in Luke and Acts is used for forgiveness of sins. Jesus has come to bring ultimate freedom from spiritual captivity and bondage. Even the notion of blindness contains the sense of spiritual blindness along with the physical inability to see. Jesus is here to open eyes in order for people to know and follow him. Which brings us to his last statement. Jesus is here to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The root idea in this word oppressed is is broken in pieces, shattered, crushed. Jesus is here to bring new life where the world has beat people down. Parkview, this is how Christ chooses to reveal himself to us in his first recorded sermon in Luke. The ultimate bringer of good news and freedom, redemption from sin, new life, this is who Christ is. The one who is reversing pain and death, bringing justice where injustice has ruled, bringing liberty where captivity has endured, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But it's also important to note that while Jesus is ultimately revealing himself here, he is also revealing the qualifications of the people that he has come to save. Jesus did not come to proclaim good news to the people who think they can keep going on their own strength. He did not come to give sight to the people who think they can already see. He did not come to free the people who think they are doing just fine on their own. Parkview, we must realize who we are and our own neediness. We must pray for and seek humility in order to see that the Lord comes and moves. We've, We've chosen as our tagline for the series, Seek and Save, and because Luke 19 says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Parkview, do you realize that apart from Christ, you are lost? And I know we normally save this for towards the end of our sermons most weeks, but if you're here and you don't know Jesus, we are so glad that you are here. Maybe you're here with a friend. Maybe you're checking out this Jesus that you heard about. Maybe, maybe you don't know why you are here this morning, but there are many things that I hope you take away from this morning. But ultimately, I want you to know that Jesus came to love and save you as you are. Not in some theoretical sense, not in a way where you need to do this and that before he is ready. This passage shows that the Jesus revealed in the Bible came to proclaim good news to you. There is hope to be found in him. And if you want to find out more about that, I would love to talk to you about uh, after the service. There are other leaders who would love to talk to you after the service. Do not leave without talking to one of us about the hope that can be found in Christ. 
Parkview, I hope you see how good our God is, how beautiful our Savior is. We are those poor, those captives, the blind, the oppressed, but Jesus has proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor, and we can find hope in him alone. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that we have two sermons in two synagogues in our passage for this morning, but what's interesting is that we actually get no content from Jesus' second sermon at Capernaum. Looking down in verse 31, all it says is, he was teaching them on the Sabbath. For, uh, again, we have Luke's storytelling on display. For whatever reason, he, he believes that it is important to state the basic content of one sermon, but not the other. And it could be because Luke is implying that the content was nearly identical. You know, I don't think that's a jump. It could be that Jesus' words weren't recorded here, or it could be because Luke is really wanting to draw attention to something else. While we may not know exactly what was said, we certainly know Christ was continuing to reveal himself, that, that Jesus is preaching the good news of the coming kingdom of God, which ultimately finds fulfillment and realization in Christ. And so, so what Luke is doing here is using the gift of storytelling to draw attention to two different reactions of the people. Very similar revelation of Jesus, two very different reactions. And so uh, Jesus has given this revelation about himself, and he does continue to reveal himself through his works. But through this initial teaching, he has revealed his purpose and his calling. He's bringing freedom and new life. He is bringing the kingdom of God. And so now we will examine the reaction of his listeners. Revelation to reaction. So if we look back at Nazareth, I think we again see Luke's storytelling on display. He very slowly and almost imperceptibly builds the tension in the story. If you look down with me at at 422, it seems that the people immediately respond with amazement and wonder. It says, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Doesn't this seem like the response that we would expect from people who just heard this remarkable news that the prophecies in Isaiah have been fulfilled? If you can picture yourself in that crowd, isn't that what you would be thinking? Especially after hearing all about what Jesus has done in other towns around Galilee, this is incredible news. However, we soon realize that that's not really what they are thinking. Luke is artfully concealing the true heart of their words that Jesus then exposes in the next verse. This idea of, is not this Joseph's son, could be interpreted as amazement that something so remarkable came from a beginning so humble. Could be the amazement you may experience when seeing artwork from the high schooler next door whose parents are both bankers, or hearing on the news about a doctor who just performed life-saving surgery and and realizing that it was actually your childhood classmate. Uh, However, these remarks in Nazareth are actually not so innocent. This account of Nazareth is also depicted in both Matthew 13 and in Mark 6, where the same general question of, is not this Joseph's son, is asked. However, those questions about Jesus' origin in both Matthew and Mark are immediately followed by the phrase, they took offense at him. Luke may conceal it for a moment, but is not this Joseph's son is actually a statement of unbelief. Even though they may be amazed at his words, they can't believe that Jesus can actually be who he claims to be. And Jesus rightly interprets these feelings as he illuminates their thoughts in verses 23 and 24. Look down, it says, Jesus said to them, doubtless you will question to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Ultimately, these people cannot get past their own preconceived, 
incorrect, perhaps unconscious, unconscious expectations about who Jesus is and what he has sent to do. They want a sign. They want Jesus to prove to them so that they can see with their own two eyes that he is who he just claimed to be. Why can't he just show them the physical signs that he's been showing everywhere else in Galilee? Why can't you just do what you did in Capernaum? Come on, Jesus, this is your hometown. Give us something. And as Jesus defends his choices with two Old Testament stories, the people continue to get more and more riled up until they literally try to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. I'll come back to these very important stories in a moment, but I want to continue to focus on the people's reaction first. Because Luke does not start with a story of great success. His first recorded public sermon does not result in in hundreds of people repenting and believing the gospel. In fact, if we look at our other reaction in Capernaum, we may wonder why these stories are in the order they're in. The wording may seem similar, but there does not seem to be any of the underlying unbelief in Capernaum. Right? Verse 32 says they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And that's it. You know, it may seem similar, but there's no questioning, no apparent unbelief, no getting called out by Jesus. And see, both Matthew and Mark have this account of Capernaum placed before the story of Nazareth in their gospels. Matthew has Capernaum in chapter eight, Nazareth in chapter 13. Mark has Capernaum in chapter one, Nazareth in chapter six. These stories are separated by several chapters of Jesus's ministry in both of these other gospels with Capernaum occurring before Nazareth. So again, we see Luke make a choice for the sake of storytelling to place these two stories together at the beginning of Jesus's ministry and in the order they occur. Luke has spent three and a half chapters setting up Jesus as the one who has come to bring restoration to Israel Jesus comes onto the scene as this fantastic, spirit-filled preacher who is, according to Luke, almost immediately questioned, chased from the pulpit, and nearly killed by the people who watched him grow up. What's going on? I think one reason for Luke's choice here is to foreshadow the rest of his book. He's sprinkling in details and setting up themes from the beginning like a good mystery writer. He's beginning to show his readers that Jesus' ministry will not always be well-received. Even though Jesus is proclaiming very good news for all people, not everyone will accept it. And spoiler alert, but while this revolt against Jesus that intends to put him to death fails, a later one will not. Luke 22 and 23 depict a crowd who also can't believe Jesus is who he claims to be. They cannot accept the radical claims that he has been making. They cannot see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy or the redemption of Israel. They can't accept themselves as the lost ones in need of help or the failures in need of salvation. And while Jesus, knowing it was not his time, escaped from the crowd in Nazareth, he does not escape from the crowd in Jerusalem. It is people's inability to see Christ as he revealed himself, it revealed himself to be that leads to his physical death, or to his death in a physical sense. It is their inability to accept that he is working in a way that goes against all of their expectations for the Messiah, their long-awaited Savior. But as we see in Capernaum, not everyone will respond this way. Those who are able to humble themselves and accept what Christ has revealed to them respond with astonishment and wonder. And their belief and acceptance of who he says he is is proven to them. As Chuck Swindoll says, when people came to Jesus wanting to believe, 
He gave them signs to validate their decision. And when people came to Jesus looking for a reason to reject him, he gave them all they hoped to find. Capernaum wanted to believe in Jesus. Nazareth was looking for proof. In Parkview, don't we often find ourselves responding more like the people in Nazareth than those in Capernaum? We may at first be all amazed by God's promises through Jesus, but there's that lingering cynicism, that lingering question of God, is that really how you work? Many of us come to church on Sunday and sing these truths loudly, but then our situation doesn't improve during the week, and we may begin to doubt and question. We think, God, we've done most things right. We've done everything right. Why can't you just provide proof that you have power and that you care? Why can't you, you know, increase my bank account? Why can't you heal my illness? Why can't you show me something? Now, please don't hear me saying that this, that God is not responding because of our lack of faith. That is not what this is saying. What I am saying is that we must stop placing our expectations above God's will. Parkview, we must seek to practice humility. We must recognize that we are desperate and in need of salvation. We must accept that God is in control and that he will move according to his will and purposes and not our own expectations. And so that's what we'll see in Jesus' rebukes. He's revealed himself to them. They've reacted in very different ways. And now Jesus rebukes and responds to the people. And let's actually, we're gonna stay in Capernaum here for a moment because Jesus' rebukes continue to reveal Christ to us and to them. Jesus has evidently already proven his authority in teaching as we see in, in verse 32, but now he proves his authority in healing and casting out demons. His first rebuke is of the demon who confronts him in the synagogue. This isn't some drawn out fight. Jesus simply speaks and brings freedom. Jesus alone has ultimate authority, and that is on display as he rescues this man from the demonic possession. Jesus has shown that he is, truly has the power to proclaim liberty to captives. As Swindoll would say, this is the first of Jesus' signs in that congregation to validate, to validate their belief in his authority. Jesus' second rebuke in Capernaum comes later that day. He has left the synagogue and gone to Simon's house. However, Simon's mother-in-law is sick in bed. And again, Jesus exercises his authority. If you look at verse 39, Jesus rebukes the fever, same word in Greek as for the demon, and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve him. And if we continue down, we see that as soon as the Sabbath is over with the sun setting, meaning that people are allowed to travel again, people start showing up. It literally says in verse 40 that, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his, laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So, so I wanna pause here because I wanna draw attention to how these people are responding. We already know that they were astonished by his authority and clearly believed. That was the reaction as he revealed himself to them. However, there's, there's this physical act that we see now, right? We, we don't get all of the details, but Simon's mother, mother immediately responds to Jesus' healing by seeking to serve. And the people of Capernaum, who have seen Jesus, heard his message, believed his revelation, seen him cast out this demon, and can't wait to come to him to experience this healing and freedom he promises. Luke states that every person who was sick in a town of potentially up to 1,500 people came to him to experience healing, and he heals. Well, as we discussed earlier, Jesus' claiming of Isaiah 61 does not exclusively refer to physical healing. It certainly includes it. We can certainly imagine that he is physically healing the blind, bringing freedom and liberty to the oppressed. And so Parkview, if we know and trust the power of Jesus, why would we not respond in obedience? 
Why would we not go further in? Why would we not seek to enjoy the fullness of following Jesus? So let's go back to Nazareth for Jesus' final rebuke. Because while in Capernaum, in response to the people's faith and belief in Christ's authority, he rebukes demons and illness to bring freedom and healing. But in Nazareth, Jesus rebukes the people. And we have much to learn from what he says because as, as we already said, we often find ourselves more like the people in Nazareth than those in Capernaum, clinging to our own expectations rather than submitting to the Lord's will. Jesus has identified the people's true heart in verses 23 and 24. They want signs like the one he did in Capernaum, but they really don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So Jesus reminds them of two stories from the book of the Kings in the Old Testament. I think these stories, we get even a step further in to see the heart of Nazareth's reaction and maybe even some of our own underlying hesitations. If you have time, I would encourage you to read both of these stories in their full context. They're they're really wonderful, but, but Luke contains the relevant details for his point this morning. The first story is given in Luke 4, 25 and 26, which draws from 1 Kings chapter 17. And in Luke it says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. The second story is given in verse 27, drawing from 2 Kings chapter 5. And there were many lepers in Israel in this time, in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, Jesus could have only referenced one of these stories to get his point across, but the fact that he gives two makes his point all the more clear. What do these stories have in common? I think the the language here even draws attention to it if we pay careful attention. Both stories include there were many X in Israel, and the prophet ministered to none of them. Instead, but only to who? The ones outside of Israel. And not only that, but the low status outside of Israel. And remember, Parkview, that Luke is writing this book to Gentiles, people outside of Israel, like Naaman and Zarephath. He has crafted the story to show his audience that they are included, focused in Jesus's ministry. Diane Shen, a New Testament scholar, in her commentary on Luke says, common to Elijah and Elisha's stories was their mission to those despised by reason of gender, a woman, marital status, a widow, Gentile origin, Sidonian and Syrian, and physical deformity, a leper. It was not as though Elijah and Elisha did not help their fellow Israelites, but Jesus emphasized that even with the needy among Israel, God chose to send his prophets to those of even lower status, a Gentile widow and a Gentile leper. Indeed, God's grace extends beyond the boundaries of Israel, a lesson so difficult for Jesus' compatriots to learn. So if we look back at Jesus' audience in Nazareth, their anger continues to make more sense, right? If we know the greater context of these stories, Elijah and Elisha were prophets that weren't accepted in Israel, in their hometown, so to speak. Israel was ruled by terrible kings who continued to lead the people into greater unbelief. And what did these prophets do? What did God commission these prophets to do? They were sent to the people that we would least expect in order to bring healing and hope, not to the person like them, not to the man, not to the Israelite, but to the social outcast. So as the people in Nazareth Nazareth clamor for proof, even though they don't really believe, what they're really saying is, come on, Jesus, you know us. 
what? Just do some miracles here. And Jesus rebukes them, responding with, you can't dictate how my ministry will go. It's not that Jesus doesn't have the authority or power. We see in Capernaum that he clearly does, but Jesus is saying, God has sent me to minister to the poor, to the blind, the needy. And if you can't accept that, I won't work here. You can set up whatever expectations you want, but he teaches, Jesus teaches and heals as he wills and not according to our expectations. In Parkview, we should be very thankful that Jesus does. Because in conclusion, when we, when we look at the salvation offered to us, <clears throat> it is one that we would never expect. See, Jesus' entire earthly ministry climaxes in this event that I've already referenced. Nazareth attempted to put Jesus to death, but the leaders in Jerusalem will actually succeed. Israel's expectations for a Messiah and even our expectations, if we're honest, would never have included a humiliating, painful, public death on a cross. We may have this picture in our mind of a conquering king who exercised his ultimate authority publicly and gave us everything we ever wanted. And in addition, their expectations and our expectations often wouldn't include the people that Jesus came to save. They wanted the salvation for themselves on their own terms. But that's not who Jesus was. What he did or who he came to save, Jesus brought a salvation that totally defied earthly expectations. He brought salvation, not to the healthy, but to the sick. He offered new life to the oppressed and shunned by the world. He brings freedom to all who come to him, Parkview, to all who come to him. And the salvation was only accomplished through dying the death that we deserved, by going to the cross on our behalf, by modeling the life of humility, service, love, submission of expectations. So Parkview, while this passage may not lead to an application in something we physically do, there is an all-important response that we must practice. We must see Christ as he truly presents himself in the word. The one who proclaims good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, brings sight to the blind, and liberty to the oppressed. And we must see ourselves in those categories. The poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, the lost. We must recognize that if salvation on our terms was never the plan, Jesus had the better plan. Jesus has the authority to teach and heal as he wills and not always according to our expectations. Now, one gift that the Lord has given us in order to see Christ more clearly as well as to recognize our own neediness more regularly is the gift of communion. In this meal that we celebrate each week, we are remembering Christ as he has revealed himself to us, the one who gave his body for us, shed his blood for us, the one who worked according to the Lord's will and not our own expectations. In his death on the cross, remembered in this meal, he accomplished the ultimate freeing of captives, the ultimate defeat of sin and death. And this is what we remember in this meal. But in this meal, we also recognize our own neediness. Just like we hunger and thirst for food and drink in order to physically survive, this meal reminds us that there is spiritual nourishment that we must seek. In taking the bread and the cup, we are expressing dependence on the Lord for everything we need. We are those poor, those captives in need of the good news. Paul commands us to examine ourselves as we approach this meal, ultimately recognizing our sinfulness and our need for a savior. So we want to give you a time to prepare your heart for this meal. As we have the band come up, music begins to play. Take time to remember Christ. 
Consider what expectations or preconceptions you may have that, that, you, that just aren't how he has revealed himself. And also take time to recognize your neediness. Confess any sins you may be struggling with and consider how Christ has met you in that, in your sin. And when you're ready, you can come up, get the elements and take them. But first, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this meal. We thank you that you have clearly revealed Christ to us. Jesus, we praise you as the savior of the world, the one who brings good news and new life. Lord, would you continue to correct our expectations? Give us submission, humility to your will, your expectations, creating us that humility to see you work and lead us to say, as Christ did, not our will, but yours alone. Amen.